According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 13 is our passage. We are uh, looking at verses 1 through 5, and I also anticipate moving on to verses 6 through 9. We have just a couple of issues left to deal with in terms of the repent or perish passage, and then we will move on to episode 15, the uh, the barren fig tree, and I actually attached those slides already to the end of uh, this slideshow. Yep, so we should be uh, we should be good for this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and our worship today is in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this new day that you've set before us and for all of the abundant grace blessings that are ours, Father. You keep pouring them forth uh, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, Father. We don't deserve any of them, and, and yet you continue to shine them forth. We thank you for each one. We thank you for all of them, and we give you the praise and the glory. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing as we study these uh, verses today here in Luke 13. Thank you for the uh, the edification that is promised to us, that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. We pray that these verses today would profit us mightily as we evaluate our own uh, attitude towards others, as we evaluate our own uh, concern for a, uh, a fruitless tree, and uh, evaluate where we are and what we're doing in, in accordance with your plan. So, Father, I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so many issues to deal with, and uh, as we've been going through them, there were four issues altogether that we're addressing in episode 14. This is on the occasion, reading from Luke 13:1. there were some uh, present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's no question this is uh, a political atrocity, this is murder, this is something terrible that the Roman governor did to the Jews, the, the Galileans. And uh, interestingly enough, of course, Jesus uh, was considered a Galilean. It was where, not where he was born, but where he was raised in his childhood and early adult life in uh, Nazareth. And so he would be a Galilean. He was considered a Galilean. Uh, most of his disciples were Galilean. In fact, to our knowledge, the only non-Galilean in the group was, was, the, was the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. The, the, village of, the village of Iscarioth was uh, Judean rather than Galilean. But in any event, uh, they seek to provoke him here with a political atrocity to see how he's going to respond, how he's going to react, if perhaps he might be sidetracked from his teaching ministry and get involved. There have been previous attempts at this as well. When he fed the 5,000, they've tried to rush him off and make him king and other things of that nature. So, in any event, we don't want to read too much into the text or read more into it than, we, than is truly there. But I think we have the insight into their thinking when he exposes that in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose? 
And in this rhetorical question, the answer is yes. This is exactly what they suppose. And this is the mentality of legalism. Whether it's Judaistic legalism, Catholic legalism, Baptist legalism, I don't care. Name your legalism. If you are stuck in a system of legalism, then uh, that promotes the attitude of relative righteousness, that you're doing better than the next guy. And uh, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Obviously, if it happened, if God let it happen or decreed for it to happen, uh, you know, if you're big on sovereignty, then God made it happen because they deserved it. See, and these are the principles that we deal with. And and he not only turned the tables on them in the one episode they brought up, but he actually brings up a second episode of his own with uh, what we're looking at today, the Tower of Siloam, that fell and uh, and killed a number of them. So that's what we're dealing with. Now, under point one, we examined the context and found what the occasion was on the same occasion. And it was the occasion of the emphases that were presented in chapter 12, including uh, the emphasis on perception where they can look around and they can see the signs of the times, but or they can predict weather, they can predict political events, but they can't predict spiritual events. They don't recognize the day and age in which we live. See, I hope church-age believers living in this present evil age know the time in which they live, can recognize the time is short, can recognize the table is set, that there is not, I mean, there's always been the imminency of the rapture, but we're seeing in our day not only the imminency of the rapture as a doctrinal concept, but we are actually seeing the table set in terms of Satan's plan and program in the tribulation. And what is left for Satan to prepare? See, now we don't have signs of the rapture, but we do see what's going to take place once the rapture is taken place and once Antichrist is unveiled and once the things take place in the Middle East and so forth. And what, what uh, uh, Dr. Tommy Ice calls the table setting or the stage setting and so we're not looking at our own uh, prophecies to be fulfilled because there aren't any. The rapture has no prophecies to be fulfilled. But everything that's going to take place in the tribulation, uh, which could happen, uh, you know, if the rapture is today, we can see these things very quickly. That's what I'm saying. We better understand the day and age in which we live and understand the urgency of the time. I think the admonitions in Scripture are pretty vital in that regard. And so here they are. Understand where they are. They have been waiting uh, for 2,000 years for their Christ to be revealed. And the herald announces, the king, uh, here is the king, and the kingdom of God is upon you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they don't have uh, the uh, humility to repent and accept that and, and submit to his teaching. So, in fact, they want to just simply lock in on political activities and see if they can get him uh, over to their side of things by joining his cause against uh, against uh, Pilate's brutality. All right. Well, he's not going to join their cause in crusade in in marching against Pilate's brutality. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is Pilate's brutality is going to be part of the instrumentality that will put him on the cross about six months after the events of what we're looking at here. All right. So there's some sub points on that. We'll skip by. Um, skip by those. Let me just take a, a guess here. There we are. Good guess. Point two. Jesus' reply exposed the accuser's true feelings. True feelings. In other words, they deserved what they got. 
These accusers considered the massacred Galileans to be deserving of their suffering. If a bad thing happens, well, by golly, they got what was coming to them. See? And it's the same flawed logic of Job's accusers, that every bad thing that happens in life is divine discipline and direct application against uh, sin or against wickedness or against something. See, they, they didn't know what it was he was guilty of, but uh, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz just knew that Job was guilty of something. He had it coming, and, and uh, they were just couldn't wait to find all the juicy details. Come on, Job, confess it. Get it off your chest. Let us know. What was it? Kind of a thing. Flawed logic. Fails to comprehend undeserved suffering and all the principles that happen there. And actually, you know, it has to be a valid principle because Jesus Christ is the example. What did he do to deserve his crucifixion? What did he do to deserve his uh, attacks and the crown of thorns and the beatings and the rejection and everything that he went through? To be accused of being filled with the demons and all of the slander that they threw against him. Did he deserve any of that? No. There is a valid principle of undeserved suffering of what happens when sons of light function in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. There will be conflict. There will be hostility. This view also uh, succumbs to the cosmos wisdom of relative righteousness. The cosmos wisdom of relative righteousness. The world's wisdom. You understand what I mean with cosmos. We've had that doctrine many times. The world's wisdom of relative righteousness. Somehow, uh, some sinners are worse than other sinners. Or some uh, saints are better than other saints. See, you get this dualism in your mind that, well, you have sinners on the one hand, you have saints on the other hand. Well, you know, wake up and realize that every saint is still a sinner by virtue of what he continues to do in his sin nature. Uh, simply uh, becoming a saint by grace through faith does not remove the uh, reality of your personal sins. And so all of the scriptures there, and I think we went through those last week. Point three, Jesus' rebuke was immediate and harsh. These accusers were in urgent need of repentance. And the language is clear. Unless you repent. It's the same language again in verse five. He states it twice. Unless you repent. Repent. And the language of this is the but if not. The, the, uh, the consequences are certain. You will all likewise perish. They are in the imminent um, danger of perishing. Not just of the physical death. The concept of perish, of course, is all wrapped up in the... Um, Doctrine of, uh, of eternal wrath, the aspects of apolumi, the aspects of perishing, the language of the lake of fire, that, that, uh, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. That's nothing to do with physical death. You know, you can believe in Christ and still die physically. Everybody does, except, of course, the rapture generation. The aspect of perishing here is that they need to reevaluate their thinking in terms of who Jesus of Nazareth actually is. They need to identify with him as the Christ. They need to believe the revelation of God in terms of who the Christ is. You know, in plain language, they're unsaved, and if they don't get saved, they're headed to hell. So unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Stated twice, once in verse 3, once in verse 5. 
the need for repentance. And and by the way, this is not done. Yes, it's done actively, but it is done in response to the conviction that's taking place. Don't ever lose sight of that. No one comes to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to Christ unless the Holy Spirit is doing his work of convicting, the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment and the elements that happen there. I think some people resist or uh, uh, vibrate a little bit in the repentance passages. Because it's an active transitive verb or it's an intransitive verb. It's an active verb where the subject accomplished the activity of the verb. The person repents, just like the person believes. And in some cases, there's a hesitancy to fully accept that. Because, uh, you know, of a fear that, oh, well, that might speak of my work in salvation. I can't contribute towards my salvation and any of that. And so, and I appreciate that, and I, I understand that. But the, the passages state what they state, and we don't want to be resistant to what the Word of God says. We want to embrace what the Word of God says. And yes, the person must believe. If he doesn't believe, he doesn't receive eternal life. Yes, the repentance must take place. In other words, the change of thinking has to take place. No faith can be exercised until the thinking is adjusted, until the persuasion takes place that uh, the object of faith is to be believed. Anyway, well, more on this, by the way, in, in our soteriology study, and that's, I think, properly where it belongs. But unless you repent, unless you repent, and there's no, uh, this is not different than believing in Christ unto eternal life. It's the, that's the change of thinking that has to take place. All right. So that's the rebuke, and he gives it twice. And then he doubles down. He doubles the illustration. Jesus doubles the illustration and the application when he uses the example of the Tower of Siloam falling. All right. Now, the tower falls, and whose fault is that? You can't blame that on Pilate. This has nothing to do with Romans, or this has nothing to do with Gentiles or anti-Semitism, or how you know mistreated we are because uh, everybody's always picking on the Jews kind of a thing. This is just, you know, hey, guess what? The tower fell. You know, uh, accidents, disasters, things that happen where you can't blame a person. You say, you know what, this is an act of God or this is an act of, you know, for those that don't have a God, this is an act of nature. This is a freak act of, uh, you know, Mother Nature or what have you. So who do you blame here? Who do you blame for the hurricane, as it were? Of course, it doesn't stop people in our country. If a hurricane hits, well, then that's President Bush's fault, you know, and he hates black people and, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But um, so anyway, he switches to a new example here. He uses an example of the Tower of Siloam. Who do you or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower in Siloam fell and, and killed them, were they worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? And so he takes them to a second illustration. This is not one that they brought up, but one that he brings up. It's one that he brings up. Now, there are folks that uh, criticize this because there's no corroboration of this elsewhere in Scripture. Once again, this specific event is not recorded elsewhere in Scripture or in preserved historical documentation. The point, though, is that it was well known to these accusers. They knew all about it. They did not ask him, well, what are you talking about? What tower? What? They didn't inquire as to what he was referring to. There was no conflict in this context. They knew exactly what he was talking about. 
And uh, he was able to expose a second occasion in which uh, they were um, just as scornful. See, and it wasn't a, uh, you know, in the first instance, it was a Judean versus Galilean situation, right? Well, here the Tower of Siloam falls and and uh, that's right there in their territory. That's right there in their uh in their uh, uh, region of Judea and in the uh, area there of Jerusalem, see, where the tower was located. And so, you know, were they worse culprits than everybody else in Jerusalem? All right. So, uh, again, he exposes their pride. He exposes their, their uh, legalism that views the bad things as being God's wrath. And, oh, they, uh, they must have been doing something wrong. By the way, I'm not worked up about it. You shouldn't be either. If there's something that the Scripture records that history doesn't record, well then, uh, uh, who cares? Is our faith grounded on whether uh, secular historians uh, uh, corroborate what happens in the Bible? Not for a minute. In fact, all too often, uh, they deny things, and then, embarrassingly so, they come out and then finally have to admit, oh, okay, um, the Bible actually is accurate on this point. They mocked the Hittites for 1,800 years. All right, and then finally in the 18th century, uh, archaeology finally discovered the Hittites. And, you know, for 1,800 years, they laughed about, uh, you know, this, this mythical uh, group of people called the Hittites. Well, there they are. Plenty of other examples like that as well. And by the way, I mean, one tower falls down. Goodness gracious, you want a whole history to be written about the, the collapse of a tower? Buildings collapse all the time. But here's the principle. Hmm. Neither Judeans nor Jerusalemites were any better than any other sinners in need of salvation. All right, there's the point. Here they were all prideful about how great they were and how, oh, those Galileans must have had it coming and, and all the rest. Well, he throws an example about something that happened to some Judeans when this tower falls. Throws it right back at them and says, guess what? You know, kind of like the, uh, and, and there's no question, these guys, the Judeans, those in Jerusalem, that was where the Sanhedrin was located, that's where the temple was located, that's where the political powers that be reside. It would be like in our country where we have the political classes and those that are that are in, uh, in charge in, in Washington, D.C., and the whole, you know, New York, Boston, D.C., Philadelphia corridor of, of power. And how other parts of the country are mocked and ridiculed and laughed at and, and uh, you know, the flyover country, as it were, between the liberal East Coast and the liberal West Coast. And he gives them this example here of a Tower of Siloam and the uh, others in Jerusalem. And guess what? They need salvation too. I enjoy, uh, it's almost like the same outline you have in, in the early chapters of Romans. You've got the Gentile uh, sinners with immoral depravity in Romans 1, and they need a Savior. And then you've got the Jewish sinners in their moral depravity, a religious depravity from chapter 2. And you know what? They need, sin, they need salvation too. You get to Romans 3 and you realize all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether your sin pattern is one of immoral depravity or moral depravity or religious depravity, uh, it's fall short of God's glory and you need salvation. This prideful attitude was directly the opposite of reality. And it's interesting. Were they worse culprits? 
And uh, they've got this prideful attitude. And when you go back to Proverbs, you go back to the things that God hates, and you ever stop to notice how the haughty look always ranks high? The look of pride is always right up there in, among the forefront of the things that, that Yahweh hates. When it comes right down to it, is not the adversary himself the king of the sons of pride? And the, the whole heart attitude that, that was underneath the very first sin of the very first sinner in Satan's rebellion, was that not pride? It's what we call pride the granddaddy of all sins. And here they are in pride looking down at everybody else. And they're the biggest sinners in the whole place. And they don't understand it. It's actually uh, the uh, very consistent with what we read about in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. And here's Christ, an Old Testament prophet, just like uh, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel 11, we'll turn there first. It's kind of a backwards order, but that's all right. Ezekiel, um, we taught Ezekiel a number of years ago. Notes are in the hallway. Audio messages on the website. I don't think we have a disc, an Ezekiel disc, but probably ought to. There's good stuff in this book. Ezekiel 11. And what I find here interesting, um, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And what's interesting is Ezekiel is one of the captives. He was carried away, and Daniel was carried away in the early captivity, and then a few years later, Ezekiel was carried away about eight years after Daniel in a larger captivity where 10,000 were taken away. And then ultimately, uh, about 11 years after that, then the city was destroyed and everyone was taken. But Ezekiel's now living in captivity. He's living uh, in Babylon or the regions there around, and, and, uh, and yet he gets to travel. Okay, and this is better than Southwest Airlines. This is better than any frequent flyer program out there because uh, the spirit transports him in various places. He's, he goes actually outside of his body. He actually travels through space and time. He uh, gets to travel down into Sheol and see the depths of hell. And in a couple of places, he actually, the Lord takes him within a man's soul to see the darkness inside a man's soul. And that's, uh, that's a perspective most of us don't get because only God's the only one that can look upon the heart. So the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were twenty-five men at the entrance of the gate. Among them I saw Jazaniah, son of Azer, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. So he takes them and he gets to show them the whole religious, uh, the leaders of the, uh, of the religious structure. And, and remember, Ezekiel was of a priestly line. Ezekiel should have become a priest when he turned thirty. But prior to that, he gets yanked away to captivity. He'll never get to serve as a priest, see. Well, didn't want to, not in this crowd. Uh, son of man, these son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city. The leaders are taking them into their apostasy. And they say who say, Is not the time near to build houses? They're thinking, Hey, we're on the verge of of uh health, wealth and prosperity. Just, you know, marry and you know, giving a marriage and conducting your businesses and building houses and all of that. And then notice, the city is the pot and we are the flesh. In other words, uh, you know, we are the, the, we're the soup, we're the stew, we're the, we're the choice meat in this pot. And we, uh, 
you could have a lot of fun with that idiom and that figure of speech. But that was what they were saying. The city is the pot and we are the flesh. Mm, can't wait for this feast. And the Lord says, you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you about that pot and flesh thing here. So the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. And it's interesting, when the Lord tells Ezekiel to say, who's he going to say this to? Is he going to wake up from his dream and start preaching this to the exiles in captivity? Or does he get to become visibly manifest among these guys right there? See, in his... Uh, in his uh, spiritual journey here, his, uh, whatever you want to call it, the out-of-body travels, is he going to appear in their presence and say to them, Thus says Yahweh, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of the city, are the flesh. And this city is the pot. But I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you. Uh, the Lord God declares. And what's interesting is what they think, they think that they're just, uh, they got everything going for them and God's going to crush Babylon and they're going to be great right there in Jerusalem. And uh, just the opposite. God's going to destroy their city. And the captives that he takes, they're the choice meat. They're the choice pieces. They're the remnant. They're the ones he's delivering. The others are going to perish and die. So I will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you to the hands of strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel so you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. So they had it backwards. They weren't in God's favor. They were about to fall under God's wrath. It would be the remnant that he takes into captivity that would be... Um, the objects of his blessing. Similar message in Jeremiah 24. Now Jeremiah never was taken into captivity. He was an older man and uh, actually resided in Jerusalem uh, until and after the city was destroyed. Actually, the Babylonian military officials had orders to look for him and to spare his life if they were to if they were able to do so. Why do you think they had such orders? Why would, they, why would these pagan Babylonians have orders to save an old man prophet like Jeremiah? See, because by the time this happened, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were already in high political office. Already had tremendous uh, influence with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they had done a lot of work in between uh, 605 B.C. and uh, 587 B.C. In any event, uh, in Jeremiah 24, it's a short chapter, only 10 verses long, but um, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and uh, also, by the way, Ezekiel in that same captivity, brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me. Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. Okay? And it's kind of neat we've got a fig tie in here because our next episode deals with the fig tree. But Jeremiah gets uh, this vision, two baskets of figs. And one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. They're the ones that were evidently the tastiest. They were choice, that, uh, the early figs 
became a delicacy. The other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Uh, Jeremiah said, I said, figs. <laughs> the good figs, very good. The bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. So in other words, it's not just a difference between good and bad figs, because the good ones were very good, the best of all, and the bad figs were very bad, the worst of all. And so the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good. Guess who are the good ones? The captives of Judah, who I, am sent, who I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. In other words, the first fruits already went with Daniel and his friends. And then the second group that went in 597 B.C. with Ezekiel and uh, the group here that's described in verse 1. And so the good figs, they're already gone. Who's left? The bad figs. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. In other words, the captivity is for their preservation. Yes, it's going to be 70 years. Yes, it's going to be difficult. But they're going to marry. They're going to grow. They're going to multiply. They're going to come back. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Now, we understand later on when Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah lead them back, it is only a tithe that come back. But the ones that do are positive. The ones that return are positive. But the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to the rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. See, some of them thought they could make an alliance with Egypt and go down there and start to manipulate things. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth and a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them. And I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. Anyway, what a, what a contrast. And it couldn't be more opposite where they have it absolutely backwards with one assumption that, hey, we got it made. We're the, we're, uh, Jerusalem's the pot and we're the flesh. Everything is great. And they are the rotten figs, the absolute rotten figs. See, cosmos insanity is what it is. Cosmos insanity that calls good evil and evil good, that turns things around backwards, upside down and everything. And so Jesus exposes them in their attitude. They need to repent. They need to have a change of thinking. They're no better. In fact, they're worse. They need salvation. And he then gives them a parable. So let's look at, uh, let's get back to Luke 13 then, verses 6 through 9. Not only does he give them a message, I think pretty bluntly, in verses 1 through 5, telling them twice they need to repent or they're going to perish, he then gives them a parable. It's a parable with a fig tree. Luke 13, 6, and he began telling this parable. All right, so if you are following the outline, we are going to start over then with point 15, the barren fig tree. It's episode 15 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. Four points of study that we're going to glean out of this episode. Points one through four. Both point three and four will each have subpoints A, B, and C. All right. 
Let's look at the verses. He began telling them this parable. A man had a certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper or the gardener, the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. (laughs) Why does it even use up the ground? It's just in the way. It's taking up space, right? I mean, who knows how big the vineyard is? Doesn't say, you know, how many acres or how many, uh, you know, square feet or whatever the size of the vineyard. No idea. But whatever it is, this tree is taking up space and it's not good for anything. It's not bearing figs and uh, cut it down. We can use this uh, this uh, land for uh, for something else. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, this would be now the uh, vine dresser, vineyard keeper, gardener, answering the owner of the land. He answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, or Lord, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. Kind of some interesting vocabulary there, not important to the doctrine, but it is what it is. And it's blunt, okay? And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Now, some folks look at this paragraph and think, what's this story doing here? It is the story that illustrates what we've just been studying. It's the story that illustrates when he says, cut it down, that means wrath is here. Judgment is here. Cut it down. They need to repent or perish. All right? That's the urgency of where these legalists are and their need for salvation. All right. Point one then. The admonition to repent or perish, not for perish, repent or perish. So cross off that F. Should be no F there. The admonition to repent or perish is illustrated with this parable. This parable illustrates the repent or perish mentality or admonition. Again, in verse 3 and in verse 5, you have the or else. You have the the language of unless. If not, then. Okay? Unless you you repent, unless you metanoeo, this is the consequence. You all will surely. It's almost the language of, of Genesis. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I mean, it is that absolute statement of unless you will all likewise perish. Here we have it expressed in the language of cut it down. Cut it down. It is an order. It is expected to be executed immediately. And uh, the, the servant here understands that, uh, that that's exactly what the landowner intends. He intends an immediate uh, removal of this tree. That's why he's begging for extra time. He's begging for grace. He's begging for mercy. He's asking for one more year. He's asking for one more chance. All right. How many chances do we get? <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. In, uh, in terms of how many chances does grace and mercy extend to the, to the unbeliever? All right. And, you know, the, um, what I enjoy 
is the way the parable ends. He's just begging, you know, if it bears fruit next year, if not, cut it down. He's begging for one more year. And the parable does not tell us the master's answer. It, I mean, it just stops right there. And it's like, a, a, you know, a movie that ends with a question. And, you know, you can imagine the guy's on his knees and he's begging and he's pleading and please and he's asking this question. And then screen goes dark. The credits start rolling. Music's playing. Lights come up in the theater. Time to file out. And you're sitting there thinking, that, that can't be. Well, what's, what's the answer, right? And you're in such shocked um, tension that you kind of sit there and wait for the credits to get to the end and think, well, maybe there's an extra scene. You know, sometimes they tack a, a, a bonus scene at the end of the movie. So you sit there and you're watching all the credits roll and you're reading all the dumb, stupid stuff about key grip and, and different things. And you're waiting for the end of the credits. So it, please, let there be one final extra scene. We want to know how this ends. There isn't one. All right. Is this tree going to get a second chance? Is it going to get a fourth year when three years was all that was allotted? Why would he get an extension? Why does Hezekiah get an extension to his life? Why um, are grace extensions provided for believers or unbelievers and under what circumstances? Okay. Under what circumstances does God... Now, if you understand that God numbers your days before there is even one of them, then you have X number of days. Okay? I don't th- anyone here dispute that? I don't think so. I think everyone understands the Scriptures on that. But do you ever stop to consider... Let me uh, draw this. This is worth... Do we have time? We have time. Let me draw this out. Do you ever stop to consider that there's more to it than the X number of days? You ever wonder about that? Switch that. Bring this on. What happened there? Nothing. Let's try this. Ah, here we go. Okay. I am so anti-technological whenever anything works. It amazes me. Okay. We have X number of days. Like algebra, right? Mathematical variable. We don't know what it is. God knows what it is. Okay? And uh, whatever it is, it was established before there was even one of them. David says that in the Psalms. Okay? Okay? Uh, that uh, we're to be humble under the authority of God's word. Create in me a heart of wisdom, O Lord, that I might seek you. Uh, Teach us to number our days that we might present before you a heart of wisdom. All of the passages that address this. And which of you, by being anxious, can expand your life by even one cubic? You know, can you add one day by being anxious? Okay. But see, here's what, here's what uh, is not thought of. Because we look at that passage, okay, by being anxious you can't expand your days. And we just say, well, there's no way to expand your days. It is what it is. It's X and that's all there is is X. Whatever it is, that's all there is is X. Okay? Not one day shorter, not one day longer because by being anxious you can't extend it. Well, that passage does not mean that there are not other ways to extend it. It just means that being anxious won't do it. 
what will do it? Are there other variables at work? And I would put forth that there are. And I know there are at least one, and I believe more than one, but I can prove one biblically and I can come to a logical conclusion for at least another one. I believe that our days are numbered, but God does not limit the number of our days to one variable. In His sovereign plan. We know He has a directive will. We know He has a permissive will. We know that He has a plan that is so vast it accomplishes things we can't even consider. I believe we have X number of days, and I believe we have Y number of days, and I believe we have Z number of days. Alright, X, Y, Z. How about that? And in God's sovereign plan, He appoints... Day X, day Y, day Z. And we still don't know what they are. Okay. And probably... <laughs> if we get an F, it gives us an, another day. Alright? Now, here's what I'm talking about. The first commandment with a promise. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. What is the... What is the divine blessing for children obeying your, aunt, your father and your mother? Your days will be long on the earth. That's right. The first commandment with a promise. So, if God in His sovereignty gives us X number of days, I believe He also assigns a Y number of days as well, which is an extension of X, for however many days they are. But God provides a bonus, a boost, <laughs> what have you, it is a reward consistent with the Ten Commandments, consistent with Ephesians 6 and so forth. And I think that the Scriptures there are, are clear. Because if X is all there is, and that's all there is, and it's never one day shorter, never one day longer, etc., etc., then by golly, that first commandment with a promise is a lie. Okay? Because God is not giving you any extra days as a reward for obeying the commandment. God lied to you. He knew all along that you were going to honor your father and mother, so he made that further day your ex, and he lied to you. You don't really have a promise. You were going to live that long anyway because that's what he decreed. No, I believe he decrees an X and a Y. These are our days, and that's what he graciously extends them for the fulfillment of honoring your father and your mother. I believe that there's also a Z. Patterned by um, Hezekiah. Patterned in a couple of principles. I think patterned after Manasseh. Hezekiah was, and they were both issues of repentance and longer life. Um, by virtue of direct prayer request. By virtue of continued work to accomplish. By virtue of uh, other things going on in the plan of God. God in His grace grants an extension. And he extended and he, and he performed a miracle to move the, the shadow back on the, on the staircase to move time backwards as an as a, um, extension of Hezekiah's life. You ever wonder how he did that? Or exactly what he did at that point? I'm, I'm thinking that what he did was he actually just... Uh, Hezekiah still lived out his number of days, whatever they were, uh, but God just simply um, moved Hezekiah back 15 years younger 
So he still died at the same overall age. <laughs> you ever think about that? All right. A Z variable. What God grants on the basis of prayer, on the basis of additional assignments. Why did Hezekiah, or why did Manasseh reign for Saul? Fifty-five years he reigned as king. He was a wicked king. Terrible king. But in that 55th year, he repented and came to salvation. Came to salvation. A grace uh, provision there. I also believe there's another variable that comes into place, and this is where you get a great big fat F in your uh, report card. And... uh, it's called the sin unto death. Where yes, you had X number of days, but those days were cut short as the overruling will of God stepped in and removed you from human history prior to reaching those X number of days. See, Ananias and Sapphira and the other examples of the sin unto death. King Saul and other examples. So, In any event, I believe there's a lot more to it than just simply the X number of days. Yes, our days are numbered. However, God in his plan has also incorporated contingencies. Contingencies for various work assignments and various applications that glorify his son. You know, God is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. In the um, timetable of the rapture, why has the rapture been so delayed? Is there, a, is there an element of divine grace that has actually prolonged the church age to such a point? See. And, of course, then there's also an element of divine grace that's going to um, preempt the tribulation. It's going to cut the tribulation short of its full 70th week. Because of God's mercy at that point. Alright, so the admonition to repent or perish is illustrated with this parable. Secondly, we have fig trees. Fig trees. They're going to be used later for additional illustrations. Fig trees will be used later. This is in the fall when the second fig tree harvest comes in. The first fig tree harvest comes in the spring. Greek word for fig tree is suke, S-U-K-E, suke, number 4808. It's kind of interesting. The suke, uh, <coughs> put a compound suke moira and you get sycamore. Suke moira, sycamore. Uh, the sycamore is a uh, type of or a uh, related tree to the fig tree. Anyway, the suke, they're going to be used later on. In fact, as the crucifixion draws near, it becomes even more vivid. He's going to wither a fig tree in Jerusalem. Um, And there's a couple of episodes. Uh, Matthew records them in chapters 21 and 24. Mark records them in chapter 11 and chapter 13. Luke records one of them in uh, Luke 21. And these are probably passages you're familiar with. Um, Very quickly then, Matthew 21. In the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. This is after he uh, cleansed the temple and this is uh, in his Passion Week. Um, 
In the morning when he, he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it, found nothing on it except leaves only, and he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and said, How did this fig tree wither all at once? And uh, so anyway, he's got instructions for them about throwing mountains around and other applications of faith and, and so forth. Three chapters later in chapter 24... Obviously, uh, we'll teach this more thoroughly when we get to these chapters. The withered fig tree, though, is uh, something to keep mindful of. In uh, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Uh, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's the generation of the tribulation. Anyway, so there are classes coming up on, that will use fig trees for illustration as he approaches the cross. Matthew or the Mark 11 and Mark 13 are largely identical to what we just read in Matthew, as is... Luke doesn't have both of them, but Luke does have one of them in Luke 21:29, And that's the parable to the second. So this one here is parallel to Mark 13 and Matthew 24. There you go. Whereas these are parallel with each other. All right. What is this parable about then? Because this parable is different than the ones that are coming in the Mount Olivet Discourse, different than the ones that are anticipating uh, tribulation or anticipating that. This parable features a conversation between a man and a gardener. It's a conversation between a man and a gardener. Now, it has to do with a worthless fig tree. But ultimately, what it has to do is with a landowner and a servant, the vine dresser. The one who owns everything and expects to uh, reap the benefits of it, and the one who works on the other's behalf, and who begs and pleads for mercy. So the parable features a conversation between a man and a gardener. The man had been waiting three years for his fig tree to produce figs. How long are you going to wait? <laughs> All right. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but that's how long it takes a newly planted fig tree to actually bear its first, its first fruit. That, uh, I, I didn't know it either. I'm not a farmer. Or I'm not agricultural at all. I've never grown anything in my life. But from what I've read in multiple commentaries, they're all in agreement, that uh, a newly planted fig tree won't bear any figs its first year, won't bear any figs its, second, figs its second year. It's only in its third year, its third season, that a fig tree uh, will actually put forth figs. So uh, you talk about patience, right? And uh, so he's done it. He planted it and, and kept coming back each year, checking on it, each year checking on it. Now it's the third year. Now there needs to be some figs there. There aren't any figs. Chop it down. It's a bad tree. So he'd been waiting three years for his fig to produce figs. 
Three years is sufficient time for fig production. The time is sufficient. The time is sufficient. The time is sufficient. <coughs> you think about these prideful Judeans. Have they had time to repent? <laughs> Could they have come to Christ prior to this? Well, certainly. Any of them could have. All of them should have. All right? So the time is sufficient. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the idea that, uh, well, you know, they never heard or they didn't have enough time and so on and so forth. The excuses are inadmissible. Three years is sufficient time for fig production. The gardener begs for just one more year. Just one more year. One more chance. Okay? Maybe next year. One more chance. The next time. The gardener begs for just one more year and promises diligent cultivation. In fact, he's going to put extra work into that one tree. He's going to put extra work into that one tree. Now, I don't know if you've ever... I mean, I know you pray, and I know you've got loved ones, and I know that you lift up their salvation. But are you willing to do the extra work? To uh, break out the shovels and do the extra digging to sling the manure? Or fertilizer, if you prefer the kinder, less crude terminology. All right. It is what it is. It's dirty work. It stinks. But such was the motivation on behalf of not the landowner, the servant, the vine dresser, the worker. Not his fig tree. Not his garden. Or not his uh, vineyard. He's working on behalf of the man who owns the vineyard, who owns the fig tree. It's not his. What does he care? I find this to be an interesting parable because it's showing us, I think, attitudes that we need to cultivate ourselves in our own vineyard with our own fruitless fig trees that we're looking at? And are we giving of ourselves in sacrificial love, in, in labor, in ministry? And so this is the parable as it's spelled out. Now the imminency is what we want to focus on. And I could race through point four and the three subpoints in two minutes uh, but let's at least look at it. The imminency of God's wrath. He says cut it down. The order to cut it down is given today. The order to cut it down is a present tense order. It is here. It is now. It is right now. The imminency of God's wrath is such that gardeners ought to do their work with the utmost diligence. It's a principle of imminency. And spiritual gardeners, spiritual farmers, spiritual vine dressers, of which we all are, if you think this doesn't apply to you, guess what? It does. This is very much an Old Testament prophetic message given in an agricultural context, but we have our own application as well in the church, and we'll show you that. 
the uh, illustration Paul used of him and of himself and Apollos in 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, 1 Corinthians 3. But the imminency of God's wrath. The order is for today. The gardener is begging for one more year. Well, we may not have one more year. For our own sake of imminency in terms of the rapture, we can hear the trumpet today. We may not have tonight. We may not have this afternoon. We may not have the next hour. You know, and the interesting thing, too, is a lot of people did a whole, wrote a whole lot of things about this. Why three years? What was the point of three years? You know, the landowner came for three years and they really worked it up real hard and found a parallel with the fact that, OK, if you subscribe to the three and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ and we're now about half a year away from the cross, well, then aren't we now roughly about three years from his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended Aren't we now roughly about three years from the beginning of his ministry? And yeah, ballpark figure, we are about three years or more, maybe even four years after his baptism in the River Jordan. Okay, And so now is when it gets urgent because now, you know, boy, they've had three years to repent and now, you know, he's going to go to the cross and so forth. Well, problem with that is that at the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist was preaching about this. And he said in Luke 3, 9, <coughs> this is even before the baptism of Christ, crowds were coming out to him and he called them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Okay, so there it is, the same repentance message Christ was telling them. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Don't be so prideful about your Jewish uh, racial heritage. I say to you, God is from these stones. God can raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Look at that. Imminency is there. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe was at the root of the trees when John the Baptist was preaching. And not simply limited to three years later when Christ was getting ready for the cross. So it's a principle of imminency and it's a principle that was true three years earlier. It's true at this time and it's true for us today. Imminency. We need to understand the doctrine of imminency for our own application. All right, there's more to deal with this. We're going to come back next week, Lord willing. And we may not have next week. The axe is already at the tree, right? But if we do have next week, we'll come back and we'll look at this. And we're going to see how... <laughs> we're going to learn how to be impudent in our prayers. Right? Because... What business do we have to tell a sovereign God what to do? He said, chop it down. Well, then we ought to chop it down, right? No questions asked. Yes, sir. That's an order. This man's got an impudent request. It's like Abraham praying to save Sodom. Or Moses praying to intercede on behalf of the people. God said, back off. I'm going to nuke them. And Moses says, no, 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 no. We better learn how to pray with some impudence. And how to do so in the will of God. 
and to recognize that there's the declarative will and the directive will, the permissive will, how he responds to prayers, what motivates those prayers. Because I think there's a, a whole lot of believers that uh, would view this and say, oh, this is, this is absolutely wrong. Got no business asking for one more year. Why would you ask for one more year? Why did Hezekiah make his prayer? Why did God give Hezekiah 15 more years? Why, uh, uh, why, why, why ask for anything? Why not just, uh, just do what you're told? No question is asked. What's being taught here? What are we going to learn? So, chew on that. And uh, next week we're going to learn about those impudent prayers. We're going to learn about the faith prayers. Another example with David. He prayed and prayed and prayed. Even though he already knew what God said was going to happen, he prayed anyway. We're going to learn about that. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, uh, Father. We got to start at 6 a.m. this morning praying for pastors and churches from coast to coast. Father, uh, what a blessing. You continue to have lampstands where the Word of God goes forth. You continue to have flocks with sheep that are hungry for, for teaching. And, Father, I just thank you for that and celebrate how faithful you are. Father, uh, so long as you delay in your patience, in your mercy, then we have one more day in which to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.